So, brothers and sisters, we're coming nearly to the end of our series in 1 Peter. And as we go through this fifth chapter today, this is going to be our last message uh, in this great book of the New Testament. And I don't know about you, but for me, the last nine to ten weeks have been a bit like a roller coaster ride. There have been some ups and there's been some downs. And as I've been studying this book, there's been some difficult things to take in. There's been some hard things to stomach. Particularly this reality that as born-again believers, we are to expect to suffer in this life. Primarily because we live in a sinful world that's often hostile to us as believers but also because of the fact that we battle with personal sin on a daily basis. But I've been encouraged, and I hope that you have as well, that God doesn't allow us to suffer in vain. And I can say on the authority of Scripture that God takes every inch of our suffering and he uses it for our good, to show himself in our lives, primarily to us, but also to those around us, that they may hear the gospel and get saved. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, the following. He said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And in this verse is the great victory of our suffering here as believers, brothers and sisters, because of course Jesus is saying here that we should expect tribulation in the world, But because he's in us and he's overcome the world, we can overcome that suffering. It's a great thing. Now as we turn to chapter 5 today, what we're going to see Peter do is he's going to end this letter by concluding certain things. He's using this chapter as a conclusion really. And he's going to make some statements in conclusion to specific people groups within the fellowships that he's writing to. And he's also going to make certain theological statements in conclusion so that the people that read this letter would not forget the main purpose and the main point of this letter. Because one of the sad things that happens to us, brothers and sisters, and I'm sure you've had this experience, is you pick the Bible up in the morning and you read it, you then put it down and you forget what it said. And it has no impact upon your life. And that's why many of the New Testament authors, at the end of their letters, they have a conclusion. Because they want to restate the main point and the main emphasis of the letter, so that when you put that letter down, it impacts your heart, it changes your thought patterns, your actions and your speech, so that Jesus can be propelled into the society around you. Hallelujah. This is what we're going to see Peter do today. So let's see what he says. Now, in the first four verses, Peter addresses the first group of people that he wants to make some concluding remarks to. And we see who that group is in the beginning of verse 1, where he says... The elders who are among you I exhort. And so it's evident from the beginning of verse 1 that Peter wants to speak to a group of people called elders. And we have to answer the question, who are these elders? Who can they be? Now the Greek word for elders there is the Greek word presbyteros. 
It's where we get the English word presbytery from or presbyter. You've probably heard of Presbyterian churches in your time as a believer. But this title was used to describe a man or a group of men in the New Testament period who were mature in the faith or mature in age. And they'd been called by the Spirit to lead, to manage and to take care of local fellowships that they were a part of. And this is who Peter is addressing in verse 1. Now in the New Testament, there are different titles used to describe that one ministry of leading, taking care and managing a fellowship. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1, you see the title bishop used. Here in verse 2, you see Peter address these elders as shepherds and the Latin word for shepherd is pastor. It's where we get this title, pastors in the church. And I bring this up about these different titles, brothers and sisters, because one of the mistakes we can make when we read the New Testament and we see these different titles used is we can think that that means that there are three different people in leadership that have got three different roles. When that's not the case, the New Testament is clear that there's one ministry of leading, caring and managing fellowships, but the different titles reflect different aspects of that ministry. So when you're called an an elder, it reflects maturity. When you're called a bishop, it reflects the ability to manage. And when you're called a shepherd, it reflects the ability to care. And we're going to see Peter allude to these realities as we go on in verse 2, where he brings up two specific things that he wants these elders to do. Notice he says there that he wants them to shepherd the flock of God which is among them. And there's no doubt in my mind that when Peter uses this term, shepherd the flock, he is thinking of the imagery of a shepherd with real sheep in the first century in Israel. And we have to understand that the relationship that a shepherd had with his sheep in first century Israel was like how we relate to our pets. They would lovingly care for them, lead them, protect them from enemies and go after them when they went astray to bring them back to the flock. So unlike the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep now in the 21st century that's purely economical, in the first century it was economical, but it was also also personal. And so what Peter's saying here is he's saying to these elders, look, I want you to shepherd the flock, the people of God among you, the way that shepherds do with their sheep in the first century. I want you to lovingly care for them. I want you to lead them. I want you to protect them from enemies and also go after them when they go astray to bring them back to the flock. There's no doubt also in my mind that when he uses this term, shepherd the flock, he's thinking of what he said in chapter 2 when he said that those who come back to Jesus come back to the overseer and the shepherd of their souls. And so he's saying here, look, you guys are the under-shepherd of the true great shepherd, Jesus, And I want you to pastor these people to me, to Jesus, in the same way that Jesus would if he was here physically. He then goes on and says that he wants them to serve as overseers. And that word for overseers there is essentially a word that means to manage well, to manage carefully. He's saying here that he wants them to lead these people 
through spirit-anointed decision-making, through spirit-anointed prophetic teaching, and also through spirit-anointed priestly counsel, knowing that they would have to give an account to Jesus who has given them these people. What a ministry to have. What a privilege, but also what a sober thing to be called an elder. Now, before I go on to explain why Peter is addressing elders here in these first four verses, I want to make a couple of comments about church leadership. And here comes the controversial part. Like most things in the church, brothers and sisters, there are different opinions about church leadership within the wider Christian community. At one end of the spectrum, you've got churches that say that there should be just one person in eldership and that person should be a male. At the other extreme, you've got other churches that say, actually, no, there should be more than one person in church leadership and they can be male and female. And I bring this up because I have to say, over the last three or four years, I've come to the conclusion that we must be ready to respect other people's opinions about church leadership. And I say that even though I believe that the Bible does present, I think, the best biblical model for church leadership, but it is in no way dictatorial. So I don't think we can be as dogmatic about this area as I used to think we could be. So we must be ready to respect other people's opinions and walk with them so that we can get to the best biblical model. But the second comment I want to make is that here in Servants Church, both myself and John have the conviction that church leadership should be more than one person. That there should be more than one elder or pastor in a church because when you look at the uh, scriptures, it often speaks of church leadership in the plural rather than in the singular. More than one. But we also have the conviction... Again, looking at the scriptures, that church eldership should be all male. That ladies are not called to this ministry of eldership. And I say that because, again, when you look at the scriptures at face value, that's what it seems to indicate. I don't want to dwell on those comments because I know probably many of you disagree with me on that. But if you want to talk to me about it afterwards, then that's fine. But I bring them up because as we go on in verses 2, 3, and 4, hopefully you will be able to connect with these verses with regard to previous experiences that you've had in churches and also to know what we are shooting for here in Servants Church. Now as he goes on in verse 2, 3, and 4, what he begins to do is he begins to exhort these elders to shepherd the flock and to serve them as overseers in a specific way. And he does this by almost comparing two types of pastors. On the one hand, you have what I would call as a Jesus-centered pastor or elder who shepherds the flock and serves them as an overseer willingly, in verse 2, eagerly, in verse 2, and then in verse 3, as an example to the flock. But then on the other hand, you've got what I would call as a self-centered pastor, who shepherds the flock and oversees them in verse 2 by compulsion, in verse 2 for dishonest gain, and then in verse 3 as being a lord over those who've been entrusted into their care. 
And he's obviously exhorting them to be Jesus-centered pastors or elders. Now, why is he doing this? Well, he's doing this, remember, brothers and sisters, because these congregations, these fellowships that he was writing to were suffering. And you have to realize that the pastors and the elders probably would have been persecuted and suffered more than the congregation because they would have been seen in the first century as the leaders of the false religion that was being propagated by Christians. That's what they thought. They would have also been persecuted more because they would have been seen as the leaders of a rebellion against Caesar. And so for many of these pastors, what was happening to them is they were going away from being Jesus-centered pastors and they were beginning to be tempted to be um, self-orientated. They were beginning to be tempted to shepherd the flock and oversee them by compulsion for a guilty conscience. They were beginning to shepherd the flock and oversee them for dishonest gain. They were asking for more wages because they were being persecuted more. They felt that they deserved to be paid more. And then also what they were doing, what they were being tempted to do, was shepherd the flock and serve them as overseers by being lords over those entrusted to them. They were beginning to heavy shepherd their congregations by using too many laws. And so what Peter knew is he knew that that would be bad for those pastors, it would be bad for their congregations, that the congregations would would be be getting less fruitful and they'd be more inclined to be attacked by the devil. And he's saying to these guys, look brothers, you've not been promised to have a stress-free ministry. You've not been promised to have riches now as an elder. You've not been promised even to rule now as an elder. But what you have been promised in verse 4 is that when the chief shepherd appears, you will be given a crown of glory that does not fade away. Hallelujah. I find this verse, and I'm sure John does, so reassuring. Because guess what, brothers and sisters? Being an elder... And being a pastor is difficult. It's not the glamorous position that many churches portray in the 21st century. There is a cost to being an elder. There is a cost to having that position. There's a weight of responsibility that comes with it that you only begin to realize when you start walking in it. And the devil would like nothing more than to discredit pastors and elders because he knows that when he can do that, or when he does do that, the church suffers. And so therefore it's very important in verse 4 for pastors and elders in the world to have this, in a sense, this eternal outlook of a reward in the future because it keeps us going. It motivates us to be that Jesus-centered pastor until we see him face to face. And this leads me on to the two applications that I want to bring out from these first four verses. And the first one is this, that brothers and sisters, myself and John, and all the pastors and elders in this city, we need your help. How can you help us? Well, you can pray for us on a daily basis. Pray for our families. Pray for our children. Because the devil, the world, and even our own flesh wants to take us away from doing what we're called to do. And we need your prayer support, so please pray for us. I'm not asking you to pray for me every single second of the day. But pray for me at least once a day, please. We need your help. 
But then also the second application that I believe the Spirit wants to bring out is back in verse 1. Because in verse 1, he said after he's exhorting these elders that I, who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will, will be revealed. And what Peter's doing there is he's identifying himself as an elder and he's identifying himself with experiences that the elders have gone through. They've shared in the sufferings of Christ and they have also been a partaker of the glory that's to be revealed. And so therefore, the application that comes from verse 1 is for those men in here who feel that they're called to be elders or if, you know, if you're called to be an elder in the future. And what we get from verse 1 is that there are two things that each man has to go through before he becomes an elder that will help him in his ministry. And that is that you must share in the sufferings of Christ and you also must be a partaker of the glory that's to be revealed in the future. Why? Because if you suffer in the way Christ suffered but then experience his victory in your life, you will be able to minister better to the people who God will give you to care for. And so therefore, if you are a man in here and you feel called to be a pastor or an elder, I would encourage you to pray that you go through these experiences. If you know someone in here who you feel is called to be a pastor or elder, pray for them to go through the same thing. Because what the 21st century church needs, brothers and sisters, is not hipster pastors. What the church doesn't need is pastors that think it's an easy job where there's no cost to it. What the 21st century church needs are men who have shared in the sufferings of Christ and partake of his glory so that they can, by the Spirit, care for the dear children of God that they have in their care. Because as the scriptures say, they will have to give an account in the future. Brothers and sisters, it's a good thing that the church has elders. It's a good thing that the church has Jesus-centered elders and pastors. So therefore pray that that will take place. Now, moving on in verses 5 to 7, we see that Peter addresses the second group of people that he wants to uh, give some concluding statements to. And that group of people is identified for us in verse 5, where he says, Likewise, you younger people. Now, all the students in here are getting nervous when I say this. But actually, when it says younger people there, it doesn't mean younger in age. It means younger or less mature in faith. And he then qualifies that statement in the second half of verse 5 by saying, Yes, all of you. So it's my conviction that what this second group of people that he's referring to is everyone else in the congregations bar the elders. Because of course, those people, because they haven't been called to elders, have a less mature faith. And he says three things to them in verses 5 to 7. He says that he wants them to submit themselves to their elders. He wants them to submit themselves to each other. And then he wants them to submit themselves to God so that God may exalt them in due time. And that word for exalt there means to be lifted up from a low position. 
And it's my conviction that what he's teaching here is that as we live in submission in these areas, as we place ourselves under the authority of the elders, under the authority of God working for our brothers and sisters and in our daily lives, God will deliver us from our suffering. He will lift us up from that low position that we can be in when we're suffering and put us in a high place to know him more. Well, how does that work? How does submission deliver us? Well, in the case of elders, as it says in Hebrews chapter 13, 17, that when we submit to our elders, it makes their job easier. It makes their job easier to look after our souls. It says there in Hebrews 13 that it becomes a joy for elders to look after you guys when you submit to them. But if you don't, it is a grievous thing for the elders to do that. So what that speaks to me is is that as we submit to our elders, that delivers us from suffering because that elder is more likely to talk to you, that elder is more likely to pray for you, and ask the Spirit to deliver you from your suffering. That's how it works with submission to elders. But then what about submission to God in each other and in our daily lives? How does that deliver us from suffering? Well, it delivers us, delivers us from suffering because as we grow in biblical submission, we grow in biblical humility. It says there in verse 5 that he wants us, our submission to each other to be clothed with humility. Now, biblical humility, brothers and sisters, is when we have a low opinion of ourselves. That doesn't mean we hate ourselves, but it means that we have a wise opinion of ourselves, that we're not as good as we think we are, we're not as important as we think we are, and we're not as influential as we think we are. And of course, that's coupled with submission, because submission is the right response of us in our place under Jesus, And humility is the right response to how we are to act in that position. And so as we grow in submission and we grow in humility, as it says there in Proverbs 3.34, we no longer experience the resistance of God in our life because as we grow in humility, our pride is dealt with and we're also given grace. And it's within the content of that grace that God takes us from that low position and he lifts us up. And that content is revealed to us, brothers and sisters, in verse 7, where he says that basically, as we grow in this grace, God shows us that he cares for us. And that when we see that, we give all of our cares and our problems and our anxieties over to him, and he delivers us by the Spirit. It says in Ephesians 3, brothers and sisters, that the love of Christ is beyond knowledge. It's a spiritual thing that has to be revealed to us, and that's especially the case in suffering. And so that is how submission delivers us from our suffering. Now, to me, it's very interesting that he brings submission up again in this conclusion, because he's obviously wanting these believers to remember the importance of submission in their lives. Why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that because we've seen in this letter, haven't we, that there's only good things that come from biblical submission. We saw back in, I think it was uh, chapters 2 and 3, this reality that when we live in the submission of Christ, when we put ourselves under the Father's will and don't live in our own will, 
whether it's to impersonal relationships or personal relationships, Jesus is preached from our lives. And people get the opportunity to hear the gospel. And we've seen here in chapter 5 that when we live in biblical submission, we are delivered from our suffering. We are growing in Jesus Christ. And this is particularly relevant to us, brothers and sisters, because again, in the 21st century church, submission is seen as a dirty word. It's kind of shirked away from. I don't want to hear about submission, pastor. Don't tell me about it. But what Jesus wants to say to us today, brothers and sisters, is that we need to have a changed heart and a changed mind about biblical submission. We need to no longer run away from submission, but run towards it. We need to no longer, in a sense, stick our noses up at submission, but we need to run up to it and give it a good hug. Because, honestly, there's nothing bad that comes from submission. Only good things come from it. People have the opportunity to hear the gospel. You get delivered from your suffering. You get delivered from your problems in your life. So why on earth does the church run away from submission? It baffles me. It's odd. They need to go and see a psychiatrist or something like that. But this is the point that Jesus wants to make. Don't run away from submission, run towards it. Because it will only do good things in your life. So going on in verses 8 and 9, he takes his attention away from specific groups in the church and he begins to talk a bit more about theology. And in verse 8 and 9, the person that he has in mind is the devil. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, we've already established in this teaching series, haven't we, that when Jesus died at the cross, the devil and his fallen angels were defeated forever. Jesus took away from Satan the keys to death and Hades. And his condemnation was confirmed forever that he was going to spend the rest of eternity in the lake of fire. And we've seen, haven't we, in chapter 3, that Jesus went down to the place of the dead between his death and his resurrection, and he preached that victory to the fallen angels who were there in prison for when they sinned in Noah's time. But even though that's the case, even though Jesus has defeated the devil, the devil is still very much around. And we see that confirmed to us in two verses, or actually three verses, in the book of Ephesians. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Listen, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we read, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, listen, in the heavenly 
places. And so what these two verses confirm to us is that the devil and his fallen angels are still around. And they exist now in the heavens, in the atmosphere around us. And that's been the case ever since the fall of Satan in the beginning in Genesis. And guess what? The devil knows that he's been defeated. He knows that his condemnation is final in the future. And what he wants to do now is he wants to take as many human beings with him to hell, to the lake of fire. We read, didn't we, back in Ephesians 2, that he's now at work in the sons of disobedience. What that means is is that he's working in unbelievers' lives to stop them from seeing that they're sinners, to stop them from seeing that they need Jesus, that they may get saved. He blinds their eyes to the truth. But then also, he, he wants to attack us, believers, because he hates believers. And he hates believers because we belong to the one who's defeated him. And he also hates us because he knows that if we depend upon the Spirit, his victory or his army is going to be reduced. People are going to get saved. The church is going to grow in purity and holiness. And that is a worrying thing for the devil. He doesn't want that to happen. And so in these verses, what we see is one way that the devil attacks us as believers. He says there in verse 8 that the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now that term walks about there is a very common term that's used in the Bible to describe angelic activity. Okay? And he says that he's walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now when I was studying this this week, the Lord reminded me of an experience I had in 2011 that I think illustrates what he's trying to say here very well. I was in Thailand in 2011, and I was with Thomas Abbott and uh, Rachel and Emma, and we went to this tiger sanctuary. And in this tiger sanctuary, they had this cage that you could actually go into unprotected, and you could go and sit in this cage with these real-life tigers and their um, trainers. I was slightly nervous because I think, if I remember rightly, Thomas told me about a year before someone had been mauled to death in this cage. So a bit gingerly and nervously, I went into this cage and I sat down next to this huge tiger here on my left-hand side. And I was getting some photos taken. And what he began to do is he began to open his mouth like that. He was yawning. But what happened was it showed me how sharp tiger's teeth are. And then he went, boom, like that. And this is what the devil does. That word, devour there, means to swallow you up. The devil comes like this in your life, boom, out of the blue. It can happen when things just seem to be falling apart around you. Things are just going wrong all over the place. It can happen through a very severe temptation that is unusual for you. It can happen through you feeling condemned and accused because that's what the devil does. He's the accuser of the brethren, according to Revelation. 
And that is why, as it says there in verse 8, we must be sober and vigilant. We must be careful and be watchful because this can happen to any one of us. But then when it does happen, because it will happen in our lives, especially if you're following after God, the devil will, you know, go after you. And when that happens, as it says there in verse 9, you must resist him, steadfast in the faith. In the faith. And what that means is, is that you stand up to the devil, listen, as a defeated enemy. You stand up to him as a believer in Jesus Christ, and you say to the devil, you are defeated. You were defeated at the cross. Therefore, I'm going to stand up against what you're doing, and the spirit of Jesus Christ is in me, who's greater than you, and can enable me to get through what you're doing right now. And what helps you in that, brothers and sisters, is knowing, as it says there in verse 9, that the same sufferings that the devil can produce are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Why does that help you? Well, because one of the tactics of Satan is that when he attacks you, he can make you feel like you're, you're the only Christian in the world going through that temptation and can heap condemnation on you. But when you know that you're not the only Christian that's going through that temptation, that is so freeing. It gives you the strength to say, you know what, Satan? You're a liar. This has been experienced by other Christians in the world, and I'm going to stand up against you and say that you're a defeated enemy. And I'm going to walk through this. And therefore, as it says in James 4, 7, when we resist Satan, what happens? He flees. Because he knows when you resist him like that, his lies will not work against you. And he'll go to the next person. That's what happens in spiritual battle. Now again, it's very interesting that Peter is talking about the devil in chapter 5. Because this is the first time that he's mentioned the devil in this book. You know, I would have thought, writing about suffering as a Christian, he might have mentioned the devil in chapter 1. But I believe he's doing this for a specific reason. And that is because Christians make two mistakes when they think about the devil. The first mistake they make is that they think too much about the devil. They give the devil too much credit. They think that everything that's going wrong in their life is because of the devil, when that's not necessarily true. And the second mistake that Christians can make is they can think not a lot about the devil. They can think that the devil doesn't exist that he's not in the world, that he can't really, you know, affect me anymore. And again, that's a mistake. And I believe that Peter's writing this here in chapter 5 so that we don't make those mistakes, that we have a balanced view about the devil, that yes, he is in the world, yes, he can influence believers, but he's a defeated enemy and we can stand up against him. So therefore, let us do that, brothers and sisters, in a biblical way. Now, Going into our last four verses, five verses, sorry. This is really the crux of Peter's conclusion to this letter. And I have to say, these five verses are, they're very impressive. Because Peter must have been in a very difficult position in thinking about how he was going to close this letter. Because he's talked about some pretty heavy things for the last four and a half chapters. And what he does in these last five verses is he brings up three punchy 
lines or three things that he wants, to, wants these believers to remember to take away with them when they put the letter down. And this is the same for us. There are three things here that we must always have in our pocket whenever we're going through suffering, that we can pull them out and we can hold on to those truths and walk through the suffering that we're going through. The first thing is in verses 10 and 11. And I'm going to keep this pretty brief because I want you to remember the main point. And the main point he's making here is that he wants them to remember that their suffering has a purpose. In verse 10, he reiterates that they've been called by God to his eternal glory, that yes, they have suffered, but listen, after suffering for a while, he will perfect them, establish them, strengthen and settle them. Speaking of the fact that through their suffering, he's going to grow them and he's going to mature them in their relationship with Jesus. And he then praises God for doing that in verse 11 by saying to him, be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. But the thing I want you to remember is that your suffering has a purpose. That's the first conclusive statement. The second is in verse 12, where he begins to speak to us about this fact that it was by Silvanus, his faithful brother, that he uh, wrote this letter. Now that may mean that Silvanus uh, actually scribed the letter and Peter was dictating, or it could mean that he took the letter to the region uh, where it was going. But notice, the thing I want you to remember is that it says there, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And so the second thing that Peter wants to say is that you are exactly where you should be in your suffering. Where it says there that you're standing in the grace of God, that's spoken of in Romans 5, when it says that when we have peace with God, we now stand in grace. Do you know that, brothers and sisters? Now, as born-again believers, you are standing in the grace of God through whatever you're going through, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's average, whether it's mundane. You are standing in the grace of God because you've put your faith in Christ. And in him saying this here, he's saying, look, yes, I know you're suffering, but you are exactly where you're meant to be. You're standing in the grace of God. So that's the second statement. You are where you're meant to be. And then thirdly and lastly, in the last two verses, the third conclusive statement he wants to make is that you're not alone. In your suffering, you're not alone. Because he says there, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you. And that's a reference to the church in Rome. Also this person called Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Again, it's this reality that when you're suffering, it's so horrible when you feel alone. But you need to remember, brothers and sisters, that you're not alone. That you have other people out there who are in the church. And I believe that the the Spirit enables those people to pray for you, even when they don't know your name. So you're not alone. So, brothers and sisters, that brings us to the end of 1 Peter. We've gone through some difficult things in this book. We've gone through some encouraging things. But I want you to remember three things. 
that whenever you suffer in your life as a believer, it's for a purpose, that you're where you're meant to be, and that you're not alone. So let us remember that. And we praise Jesus each day that this suffering will not last forever, because in the future there will be none, and we'll, we'll be with him in his glory.